Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Part 14. Chapter 98. Stowing Down and Clearing Up. Already it has been related how the great Leviathan is afar off descried from the masthead, how he is chased over the watery moors and slaughtered in the valleys of the deep, how he is then towed alongside and beheaded, and how, on the principle which entitled the headsman of old to the garments in which the beheaded was killed, his great padded surtout becomes the property of his executioner, how in due time he is condemned to the pots, and like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his spermaceti, oil, and bone pass unscathed through the fire, but now it remains to conclude the last chapter of this part of the description by rehearsing, singing if I may, the romantic proceeding of decanting off his oil into the casks and striking them down in the hold, where once again Leviathan returns to his native profundities, sliding along beneath the surface as before, but, alas, never more to rise and blow. While still warm, the oil, like hot punch, is received into the six-barrel casks, and while perhaps the ship is pitching and rolling this way and that in the midnight sea, the enormous casks are slewed round and headed over, end for end, and sometimes perilously scoot across the slippery deck like so many landslides, till at last manhandled and stayed in their course, and all round the hoops wrap, rap, go as many hammers as can play upon them, for now, ex officio, every sailor is a cooper. At length, when the last pint is casked and all is cool, then the great hatchways are unsealed, the bowels of the ship are thrown open, and down go the casks to their final rest in the sea. This done, the hatches are replaced and hermetically closed, like a closet walled up. In the sperm fishery, this is perhaps one of the most remarkable incidents in all the business of whaling. One day, the planks stream with freshness of blood and oil. On the sacred quarter-deck, enormous masses of the whale's head are profanely piled. Great rusty casks lie about, as in a brewery yard. The smoke from the triworks has besooted all the bulwarks. The mariners go about suffused with unctuousness. The entire ship seems great leviathan himself, while on all hands the din is deafening. But a day or two after, you look about you and prick your ears in this self-same ship. And were it not for the tell-tale boats and triworks, you would all but swear you trod some silent merchant vessel with a most scrupulously neat commander. The unmanufactured sperm oil possesses a singularly cleansing virtue. This is the reason why the decks never look so white as just after what they call an affair of oil. Besides, from the ashes of the burned scraps of the whale, a potent lie is readily made, and whenever any adhesiveness from the back of the whale remains clinging to the side, that lie quickly exterminates it. Hands go diligently along the bulwarks with buckets of water and rags restore them to their full tidiness. 
The soot is brushed from the lower rigging, and all the numerous implements which have been used are likewise faithfully cleansed and put away. The great hatch is scrubbed and placed upon the triworks, completely hiding the pots. Every cask is out of sight. All tackles are coiled in unseen nooks, and when, by the combined and simultaneous industry of almost the entire ship's company, the whole of this conscientious duty is at last concluded, then the crew themselves proceed to their own ablutions, shift themselves from top to toe, and finally issue to the immaculate deck fresh and all aglow as bridegrooms new leapt from out of the daintiest Holland. Now, with elated step, they pace the planks in twos and threes and humorously discourse of parlors, sofas, carpets, and fine cambrics, propose to mat the deck, think of having hanging to the top, object to not taking tea by moonlight on the piazza of the forecastle, to hint to such musked mariners of oil and bone and blubber were little short of audacity. They know not the thing you distantly allude to. Away, and bring us napkins. But mark, aloft there at the masthead stand three men intent on spying out more whales, which, if caught, infallibly will again soil the old oaken furniture and drop at least one small grease spot somewhere. Yes, and many is the time when, after the severest uninterrupted labors which know no night, continuing straight through for ninety-six hours, when from the boat, where they have swelled their wrists with all day rowing on the line, they only step to the deck to carry vast chains and heave the heavy windlass and cut and slash, yea, and in their very sweatings to be smoked and burned anew by the combined fires of the equatorial sun and the equatorial triworks, when, on the heel of all this, they have finally bestirred themselves to cleanse the ship and make a spotless dairy room of it. Many is the time the poor fellows, just buttoning the necks of their clean frocks, are startled by the cry of, There she blows! And again they fly to fight another whale and go the whole weary thing again. Oh, my friends, but this is man-killing. Yes, this is life, for hardly have we mortals, by long toilings, extracted from this world's vast bulk its small but valuable sperm, and then, with weary patience, cleansed ourselves from its defilements, and learned to live here in clean tabernacles of the soul. Hardly is this done, when there she blows! The ghost is spouted up, and away we sail to fight some other world, and go through young life's old routine again. O oh, metempsychosis, O oh, Pythagoras, that in bright Greece two thousand years ago did die so good, so wise, so mild. I sailed with thee along the Peruvian coast last voyage, and, foolish as I am, taught thee, a green simple boy, how to splice a rope. Chapter 99 The Doubloon Ere now it has been related how Ahab was wont to pace his quarter-deck, taking regular turns at either limit, the binnacle and the mainmast, but in the multiplicity of other things requiring narration, it has not been added how that sometimes in these walks, when most plunged in his mood, he was wont to pause in turn at each spot, and stand there strangely eyeing the particular object before him. When he halted before the binnacle, with his glance fastened on the pointed needle in the compass, that glance shot like a javelin with the pointed intensity of his purpose, 
and when resuming his walk he again paused before the mainmast, then as the same riveted glance fastened upon the riveted gold coin there. He still wore the same aspect of nailed firmness, only dashed with a certain wild longing, if not hopefulness. But one morning, turning to pass the doubloon, he seemed to be newly attracted by the strange figures and inscriptions stamped on it, as though now for the first time beginning to interpret for himself in some monomaniac way whatever significance might lurk in them and some certain significance lurks in all things, else all things are little worth, and the round world itself but an empty cipher, except to sell by the cartload, as they do hills about Boston, to fill up some morass in the Milky Way. Now this doubloon was of purest virgin gold raked somewhere out of the heart of gorgeous hills whence east and west over golden sands the headwaters of many a pactolous flows, and though now nailed amidst all the rustiness of iron bolts and the verdigree of copper spikes, yet untouchable and immaculate to any foulness, it still preserved its quinto glow. Nor, though paced among a ruthless crew and every hour passed by ruthless hands, and though the live-long nights shrouded with thick darkness might cover any pilfering approach, nevertheless every sunrise found the doubloon where the sunset left at last, for it was set apart and sanctified to one awe-striking end, and however wanton in their sailor ways one and all, the mariners revered it as the white whale's talisman. Sometimes they talked it over in the weary watch by night, wondering whose it was to be at last and whether he would ever live to spend it. Now those noble golden coins of South America are as medals of the sun and tropic token pieces. Here palms, alpacas, and volcanoes, sun's disks and stars, ecliptics, horns of plenty, and rich banners waving are in luxuriant profusion stamped so that the precious gold seems almost to derive an added preciousness and enhancing glories by passing through those fancy mints so Spanishly poetic. It so chanced that the doubloon of the Pequod was a most wealthy example of these things. On its round border it bore the letters República del Ecuador, Quinto. So this bright coin came from a country planted in the middle of the world and beneath the great equator and named after it, and it had been cast midway up the Andes, in the unwanting clime that knows no autumn. Zoned by those letters you saw the likeness of three Andes summits from one a flame, a tower on another, and on a third a crowing cock while arcing over all was a segment of the partition zodiac, the signs all marked with their usual cabalistics, and the keystone sun entering the equinoctial point at Libra. Before this equatorial coin, Ahab, not unobserved by others, was now pausing. There's something ever egotistical in mountaintops and terrors, and all grand and lofty things. Look here! Three peaks are proud as Lucifer, the firm tower that is Ahab, the volcano that is Ahab, the courageous, the undaunted, the victorious fowl, that too is Ahab, 
and all our Ahab, and this round globe is but the image of a rounder globe, which like a magician's glass, to each and every man they turn by mirrors back his own mysterious self. Great pains, small gains, for those who ask the world to solve them. It cannot solve itself. Methinks now this coined sun wears a ruddy face. But see, hey, he enters the sign of storms, the equinox. And but six months before, he wheeled out of a former equinox at Ares, from storm to storm. So be it then, born in throes. Tis fit that a man should live in pains and die in pangs. So be it then. Here's stout stuff for woe to work on. So be it then. No fairy fingers can impress the gold, but devil's claws must have left them moulderings there since yesterday, murmured Starbuck to himself, leaning against the bulwarks. The old man seems to read Belshazzar's awful writing. I have never marked a coin inspectingly. He goes below, let me read. A dark valley between three mighty heaven-abiding peaks that almost seem the trinity in some faint earthly symbol. So in this vale of death, God girds us round, and over all our gloom the sun of righteousness still shines a beacon and of hope. If we bend down our eyes, the dark veil shows her moldy soil, but if we lift them, the bright sun greets our glance halfway to cheer. Oh, on the great sun is no fixture, and if at midnight we should fain snatch some sweet solace from him, we gaze for him in vain. This coin speaks wisely, mildly, truly, but still sadly to me. I will quit it, lest truth shake me falsely. There, now's the old mogul, soliloquized Stubb by the triworks. He's been twigging it. And there goes Starbuck from the same, and both with faces which I should say might be somewhere within nine fathoms long, and all from looking at a piece of gold, which I did have now on Negro Hill or in Collier's Hook. I'd not look at it very long ere spending it. <laughs> in my poor insignificant opinion, I regard this as queer. I've seen doubloons before now in my voyagings, your doubloons of old Spain, your doubloons of Peru, your doubloons of Chile, your doubloons of Bolivia, your doubloons of Papian, with plenty of gold moidres and pistoles and hoys and half hoys and quarter hoys. What then should there be in this doubloon of the equator that is so killing wonderful? By Golconda, let me read it once. Hello, here's signs and wonders aplenty. That now is what old Bowditch in his epitome calls a zodiac, and by my almanac below calls it ditto. I'll get the almanac, and as I have heard devils can be raised by Diablo's arithmetic, I'll try my hand at raising a meaning out of these queer curvicues here within the Massachusetts calendar. Here's the book. Let's see now. Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. And the sun. He's always among them. <laughs> here. Here they are. There they go. All alive. Aries of the ram. Taurus of the bull. And Gemini. Here's Gemini himself for the twins. Well, the sun. He's wheels among them. Hey. Here on the coin, he's just crossed the threshold between two of twelve sitting rooms, all in a ring. Book. You lie there. The fact is that you books must know your places. You'll do to give us the bare words and facts, but we come into a supply of thoughts. That's my small experience so far as the Massachusetts calendar and Bowdish's navigator and devil's arithmetic go. Signs and wonders. <laughs> but if there's nothing wonderful in signs and significant wonders, there's a clue somewhere. Wait a bit. Hist. Hark. By Jove, I have it. Look, you doubloon. You zodiac here is the life of man in one round chapter, and now I'll read it off right straight out of the book. Come, Almanac, to begin. There's Ares of the Ram, lecherous dog, he begets us then. Taurus of the Bull, he bumps us the first thing. Then Gemini, or the twins, that is, virtue and vice. 
We try to reach virtue, when lo, comes Cancer the Crab and brings us back. And here, going from virtue, Leo, a roaring lion, lies in the path. He gives a few first bites and surely dabs with his paw. We scrape and hail Virgo, the virgin. That's our first love. We marry and think we be happy. And a when pop comes Libra, or the scales, happiness weighed and found wanting. And while we are very sad about it at all, Lord, how we suddenly jump and Scorpio, or the scorpion stings us in the rear. We are curing the wound. When wang comes the arrows all round, Sagittarius or the archer is amusing himself as we pluck the shaft. Stand aside. Here's the buttering ram, Capricornius or the goat. Full tilt he comes rushing, and headlong we are tossed when Aquarius or the water bearer pours out his whole deluge and drowns us. And to wind up with Pisces or the fishes we sleep. There's a sermon now, written high heaven, and the sun goes round through it every year, and it comes out of it all alive and hearty. Jolly he lofty wheels through the toil and trouble, and so now alone here does Jolly stub. Oh, Jolly's the word for a adieu doubloon, but stop. Here comes little King Post, dodge round the triworks now, and let's hear what he'll have to say. There, he's before it, he's out with something presently. So, so, he's beginning. I see nothing here but a round thing made of gold, and whoever raises a certain whale, this round thing belongs to him. So what's all this staring been about? It is worth sixteen dollars, that's true, and at two cigars a cent, that's nine hundred and sixty cigars. I won't smoke dirty pipes like Stubb, but I like cigars, and here's nine hundred and sixty of them, so here goes Flask aloft to spy him out. Shall I call that wise or foolish now? If it be really wise, or it has a foolish look to it. Yet, if I be really foolish, then it has a sort of wisest look to it. But if asked, here comes the old manxman, the old horse driver. He must have been, that is, before he took to sea. He lifts up before the doubloon. Hello, he goes around to the other side of the mast. Why, there's a horseshoe nailed on that side, and now he's back again. What does he mean? Hark, he's muttering, voice like an old worn-out coffee mill. Prick ears and listen. If the white whale be raised, it must be in a month and a day, when the sun stands in some one of these signs. I've studied signs, and know their marks. They were taught me two score years ago by the old witch in Copenhagen. Now, in what sign will the sun then be? The horseshoe sign, for there it is, sight opposite the gold. And what's the horseshoe sign? The lion is the horseshoe sign, the roaring and devouring lion, ship Old ship, my old head shakes to think of thee. There is another rendering now, but still one text, and all sorts of men in one kind of world. You see, dodge it again, here comes Queequeg, all tattooing, looks at like the signs of the Zodiac himself. What says the cannibal? As I live, he's comparing notes, looking at his thigh bone, thinks the sun is the thigh or the calf or the bowels. I suppose, as the old women talk of surgeon's astronomy in the back country, and by Jove, he's found something there in the vicinity of his thigh. I guess it's Sagittarius or the archer. No, he don't know what to make of this doubloon. He takes it for an old button off some king's trousers, but aside, ha, here comes the ghost devil, Fidala, tail coil out of sight as usual. Oakum in the toes of the pumps as usual. What does he say? What look of he at this? Ah, only makes a sign to the sign and bows himself. There is a sun in the coin. Fire worshipper, depend on it. Ho! Oh, and more. This way comes Pip. Poor boy. Would have he have died or high? He's half horrible to me. He too has been watching all these interpreters, myself included. And look now, he comes to read with that unearthly idiot face. Stand away and again hear him hark. I look. You look. He looks. We look. Ye look, they look. Upon my soul, he's been studying Murray's grammar, improving his mind, poor fellow. But look, what he says now. Hist. I look, you look, he looks, we look, ye look, they look. Why, he's getting it by heart. Hist. Again. I look, you look, he looks, we look, ye look, they look. What's funny? And I, you, and he... 
and we, ye, and they, are all bats, and I'm a crow, especially when I stand atop of this pine tree here. Caw, 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 caw. Ain't I a crow? And where's the scarecrow? There he stands, two bones stuck in a pail of old trousers, and two more poked into the sleeves of an old jacket. What if it means me, complimentary, poor lad? I could go hang myself. Anyway, for the present, I'll quit Pip's vicinity. I can't stand the rest, for they have plain wits. But there's too crazy witty for my sanity. So now, I'll leave him muttering. Here's the ship's navel, this doubloon here. And they're all on fire to unscrew it. But unscrew your navel, and what's the consequence? Then, again, if I stays here, that's ugly too. For when aught's nailed to the mast, it's a sign that things grow desperate. Ha! Ha! Old Ahab, the white whale, he'll nail ye. This is a pine tree. My father in old Tolland County cut down a pine tree once and found a silver ring grown over in it. Some old darkie's wedding ring. How did it get there? And so they'll say in resurrection when they come fish up this old mast, and find a doubloon lodged in it, with bedded oysters for a shaggy bark. Oh, the gold, the precious, precious gold. The green miser'll hoard ye soon. Ish, ish. God goes among the world's blackberrying. Cook, ho, oh, cook, and cook us. Jenny, hey, 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 Jenny, Jenny, and get your... Whole cake done. Chapter 100. Leg and Arm. The Pequod of Nantucket meets the Samuel Enderby of London. Ship ahoy! Hast thou seen the white whale? So cried Ahab, once more hailing a ship showing English colors bearing down upon the stern. Trumpet to mouth, the old man was standing in his hoisted quarterboat, his ivory leg plainly revealed to the stranger captain, who was carelessly reclining in his own boat's bow. He was a darkly tanned, burly, good-natured, fine-looking man of sixty or thereabouts, dressed in a spacious roundabout that hung round him in festoons of blue pilot cloth, and one empty arm of his jacket streamed behind him like the broidered arm of a hussar's surcoat. Hast thou seen the white whale? See you this. And withdrawing it from the folds that had hidden it, he held up a white arm of sperm whale bone, terminating in a wooden head like a mallet. Mend my boat, cried Ahab impetuously and tossing about the oars near him. Send by to lower. In less than a minute, without quitting his little craft, he and his crew were dropped to the water and were soon alongside of the stranger. But here a curious difficulty presented itself. In the excitement of the moment, Ahab had forgotten that since the loss of his leg, he had never once stepped on board of any vessel at sea but his own, and then it was always by an ingenious and very handy mechanical contrivance peculiar to the Pequod and a thing not to be rigged and shipped in any other vessel at a moment's warning. 
Now it is no very easy matter for anybody, except those who are almost hourly used to it, like whalemen, to clamber up a ship's side from a boat on the open sea, for the great swells now lift the boat high up towards the bulwarks, and then instantaneously drop it halfway down to the Kelson. So deprived of one leg, and the strange ship of course being altogether unsupplied with the kindly invention, Ahab now found himself abjectly reduced to a clumsy landsman again, hopelessly eyeing the uncertain changeful height he could hardly hope to attain. It has before been hinted, perhaps, that every little untoward circumstance that befell him, and which indirectly sprang from his luckless mishap, almost invariably irritated or exasperated Ahab. And in the present instance, all this was heightened by the sight of the two officers of the strange ship leaning over the side, by the perpendicular ladder of snailed cleats there, and swinging towards him a pair of tastefully ornamented man-ropes, for at first they did not seem to bethink them that a one-legged man must be too much of a cripple to use their sea banisters. But this awkwardness only lasted a minute, because the strange captain, observing at a glance how affairs stood, cried out, I see, I see, avast, heaving there, jump, boys, and swing over the cutting tackle. As good luck would have it, they had had a whale alongside a day or two previous, and the great tackle were still aloft, and the mast-curved blubber-hook, now clean and dry, was still attached to the end. This was quickly lowered to Ahab, who at once, comprehending it, slid his solitary thigh into the curve of the hook. It was like sitting in the fluke of an anchor or the crotch of an apple tree and then, giving the word, held himself fast, and at the same time he also helped hoist his own weight by pulling hand over hand upon one of the running parts of the tackle. Soon he was carefully swung inside of the high bulwarks and gently landed upon the capstan head. With his ivory arm frankly thrust forth in welcome, the other captain advanced, and Ahab, putting out his ivory leg, crossing the ivory arm like two swordfish blades, cried out in his walrus way, Hey, hey, hearty, let us shake bones together. An arm and a leg, an arm that never can shrink, do you see, and a leg that never can run. Where didst thou see the white whale? How long ago? The white whale, said the Englishman, pointing his ivory arm towards the east and taking a rueful sight along it as if it had been a telescope, there I saw him on the line last season. And he took off that arm, did he? asked Ahab, now sliding down from the capstan and resting on the Englishman's shoulder as he did so. Aye, he was the cause of it, at least, and that leg too. Spin me the yarn, said Ahab. How was it? It was the first time in my life that I ever cruised on the line, began the Englishman. I was ignorant of the white whale at the time. Well, one day we lowered for a pod of four or five whales, and my boat fastened to one of them, a regular circus horse he was too, that went milling and milling round so that my boat's crew could only trim dish by sitting on all the sterns of the outer gunwale. Presently, up breaches from the bottom of the sea a bouncing great whale with a milky white head and hump, all crow's feet and wrinkles. It was he, it was he, cried Ahab, suddenly letting out his suspended breath, and harpoons sticking in him near his starboard fin. Hey, hey, they were mine, my harpoons, cried Ahab exultingly. But on! Give me a chance, then, said the Englishman good-humouredly. Well, this old great-grandfather with his white head and hump runs all afoul into the pod and goes on snapping furiously at my fast line. Hey, I see, wanted to part it. Free the fast fish, an old trick. I know him. 
How it was exactly, continued the one-armed commander, I don't know, but in biting the line it got foul of his teeth, caught there somewhere. But we didn't know it then, so that when afterwards we pulled in the line, bounce, we came plump to his hump. Instead of the other whales, that went off to windward, all fluking, seeing how matters stood, and what a noble great whale it was, the noblest and biggest I ever saw, sir, in my life, I resolved to capture him. Spite of the boiling rage he seemed to be in, and thinking the haphazard line would get loose or the tooth it was tangled to might draw, for I have a devil of a boat's crew for a pull on a whale line, seeing all this, I say, I jumped into my first mate's boat, Mr. Mounttop's here, by the way, Captain Mounttop, Mounttop, the captain, as I was saying, I jumped into Mounttop's boat, which, do you see, was gunwale to gunwale with mine then, and snatched the first harpoon, let this great-grandfather have it. But, Lord, look you, sir, hearts and souls alive, man, the next instant, in a jiff, I was blind as a bat, both eyes out, all befogged, and beheaded with black foam, the whale's tail looming straight up out of it, perpendicular in the air like a marbled steeple. No use sterning at all, then. As I was groping at midday with the blinding sun, all crown jewels, as I was groping, I say, after the second iron to toss it overboard, down comes the tail like a lima tower, cutting my boat in two, leaving each half in splinters, and flukes first. The whale hump backed through the wreck as though it was all chips. We all struck out. To escape his terrible flailings, I seized hold of my harpoon pole sticking in him and for a moment clung to that like suckling fish. But... A combing sea dashed me off, and at the same instant the fish, taking one good dart forwards, went down like a flash, and the barb of that cursed sharp iron towing along near caught me here. Clapping his hand just below his shoulder. Yes, caught me here, I say, and bore me down to hell's flames. I was thinking when, all of a sudden, thank the good God, the barb ripped its way along the flesh, clear along the whole length of my arm, came out nigh my wrist, and up I floated. And that, gentlemen, there will tell you the rest. By the way, Captain Dr. Bunger, ship surgeon, Bunger, my lad, the captain. Now, Bunger boy, spin your part of the yarn. The professional gentleman, thus familiarly pointed out, had been all the time standing near them with nothing specific visible to denote his gentlemanly rank on board. His face was an exceedingly round but sober one. He was dressed in a faded blue woolen frock or shirt and patched trousers and had thus far been dividing his attention between a marlin spike he held in one hand and a pillbox held in the other, occasionally casting a critical glance at the ivory limbs of the two crippled captains. But at his superior's introduction of him to Ahab, he politely bowed and straightway went on to do his captain's bidding. It was a shocking bad wound, began the whale surgeon, and taking my advice, Captain Boomer here stood by old Sammy. Samuel Enderby is the name of my ship, interrupted the one-armed captain, addressing Ahab. Go on, boy. Stood our old Sammy off to northward to get out of the blazing hot weather here on the line. <coughs> But it was no use. I did all I could. I sat up with him nights. Was very severe with him in the matter of diet. Oh, very severe, chimed in the patient himself, then suddenly altering his voice, drinking hot rum toddies with me every night till he couldn't see to put on the bandages, and sending me to bed half seas over about three o'clock in the morning. Oh, ye stars, he sat up with me indeed, and was very severe in my diet. Oh, a great watcher and very dietetically severe as our Dr. Bunger. Bunger, you dog laugh out. Why don't ye? You know you're a precious jolly rascal. But heave ahead, boy. I'd rather be killed by you than killed kept alive by any other man. 
My captain, you must have ere this perceived respected, sir, said the imperturbable, godly-looking Bunger, slightly bowing to Ahab, is apt to be facetious at times. He spins us many clever things of that sort. But I may as well say, en passant, as the French remark, that I myself, that is to say, Jack Bunger, late of the reverend clergy, am a strict, total abstinence man. I never drink. Water? cried the captain. He never drinks it. It's a sort of fits to him. Fresh water throws him into a hydrophobia. But go on, go on with the arm story. Yes, I may as well, said the surgeon coolly. I was all about observing, sir, before Captain Boomer's facetious interruption, that spite of my best and severest endeavors, the wound kept getting worse and worse. The truth was, sir, it was an ugly, gaping wound as surgeon ever saw, more than two feet and several inches long. I measured it with the line lead. In short, it grew black. I knew what was threatened, and off it came. But I had no hand in shipping that ivory arm there. That thing is all rule. Pointing at it with the marlin spike. That is the captain's work, not mine. He ordered a carpenter to make it. He had that club hammer there put into the end to knock someone's brains out with, I suppose. As he tried mine once. He flies under diabolical passion sometimes. Do you see this dent, sir? Removing his hat and brushing aside his hair and exposing a bowl-like cavity in his skull, but which bore not the slightest scary trace or any token of ever having been a wound. Well, the captain there will tell you how that came here. He knows. No, I don't, said the captain, but his mother did. He was born with it. Oh, you solemn rogue. You bunger. Was there ever such another bunger in the watery world? Bunger, when you die, you ought to die in pickle, you dog. You should be preserved into future ages, you rascal. What then became of the white whale? Now cried Ahab, who thus far had been impatiently listening to this by-play between the two Englishmen. Oh, cried the one-armed captain. Oh, yes. Well, after he sounded, we didn't see him again for quite some time. In fact, as I before hinted, I didn't then know what whale it was that had served me such a trick. Till some time afterwards, when coming back to the line, we heard about Moby Dick, as some call him. And then I knew it was he. Didst thou cross his wake again? Twice. But could not fasten. Didn't want to try it. Ain't one limb enough? What should I do without the other arm? And I'm thinking Moby Dick doesn't bite so much as he swallows. Well then, interrupted Bunger, give him your left arm for bait to get the right. Do you know, gentlemen? Very gravely and mathematically bowing to each captain in succession. Do you know, gentlemen, that the digestive organs of the whale are so inscrutably constructed by divine providence that it is quite impossible for him to completely digest even a man's arm, and he knows it too. So that while you take for the white whale's malice is only his awkwardness, for he never means to swallow a single limb. He only thinks to terrify my faints. But sometimes he is like an old juggling fellow, for only a patient of mine in Ceylon, that making believe to swallow jackknives. Once upon a time, let one drop into him in good earnest, and then it stayed for a twelvemonth or more, when I gave him an emetic, and he heaved up in small tacks, do you see? No possible way for him to digest that jackknife and fully incorporate it into his general bodily system. Yes, Captain Boomer! 
if you are quick enough about it and have mind to pawn one arm for the sake of the privilege of giving a decent burial to the other, why in that case the arm is yours, and only let the whale have another chance at you shortly, that's all. No, thank you, Bunga, said the English captain. He's welcome to the arm he has, since I can't help it, and don't know him then, but not to another one. No more white whales for me. I've lowered for him once, and that has satisfied me. There would be great glory in killing him, I know that, and there is a shipload of precious sperm in him, but hark ye, he's best let alone. Don't you think so, Captain? Glancing at the ivory leg. He is, but... He will still be hunted, for all that. What is best let alone that a cursed thing is not always what least allures? He's all a magnet. How long since thou sawst him last? Which way heading? Bless my soul and curse the foul fiends, cried Bunger, stoopingly walking round to Ahab, and like a dog strangely snuffing. This man's blood! B bring the thermometer! It's at the boiling point! His pulse makes these planks beat, sir! taking a lancet from his pocket and drawing near to Ahab's arm. Avast! roared Ahab, dashing him against the bulwarks. Man the boat! Which way heading? Good God! cried the English captain, to whom the question was put. What's the matter? He was heading east, I think. Is your captain crazy? Whispering Fadala. But Fadala, putting a finger on his lip, slid over the bulwarks to take the boat's steering oar, and Ahab, swinging the cutting tackle towards him, commanded the ship's sailors to stand by to lower. In a moment he was standing in the boat's stern, and the Manila men were swinging to their oars. In vain the English captain hailed him, with back to the stranger ship and face set like a flint to his own, Ahab stood upright till alongside of the Pequod. Chapter 101 The Decanter Ere the English ship fades from sight, be it set down here that she hailed from London, and was named after the late Samuel Enderby, merchant of that city, the original of the famous whaling house of Enderby and Sons, a house which in my poor whaleman's opinion comes not far behind the united royal houses of the Tudors and Bourbons, in point of real historical interest. How long prior to the year of our Lord, 1775, this great whaling house was in existence, my numerous fish documents do not make plain. But in that year, 1775, it fitted out the first English ships that ever regularly hunted the sperm whale. Though for some score of years previous, ever since 1726, our valiant coffins and Macy's of Nantucket and the vineyard had in large fleets pursued that leviathan, but only in the North and South Atlantic, not elsewhere. Be it distinctly recorded here that the Nantucketers were the first among mankind to harpoon with civilized steel, the great sperm whale, and that for half a century they were the only people of the whole globe who so harpooned him. In 1778, a fine ship, the Amelia, fitted out for the express purpose and the sole charge of the vigorous Enderbys, boldly rounded Cape Horn and was the first among the nations to lower a whaleboat of any sort in the great South Sea. The voyage was a skillful and lucky one, and returning to her berth with her hold full of the precious sperm, the Amelia's example was soon followed by other ships, English and American, and thus the vast sperm whale grounds of the Pacific were thrown open. But not content with this good deed, the indefatigable house again bestirred itself. 
Samuel and all his sons, how many their mother only knows, and under their immediate auspices, and partly, I think, at their expense, the British government was induced to send the sloop of war Rattler on a whaling voyage of discovery into the South Seas. Commanded by a naval post captain, the Rattler made a rattling voyage of it and did some service, how much does not appear, but this is not all. In 1819, the same house fitted out a discovery whale ship of their own to go on a tasting cruise to the remote waters of Japan. That ship, well called the Siren, made a noble experimental cruise and it was thus that the great Japanese whaling ground first became generally known. The siren in this famous voyage was commanded by a Captain Coffin, a Nantucketer. All honor to the Enderbys, therefore, whose house I think exists to the present day, though doubtless the original Samuel must long ago have slipped his cable for the great South Sea of the other world. The ship named after him was worthy of the honor being a very fast sailor and a noble craft every way. I boarded her once, at midnight, somewhere off the Patagonian coast, and drank good flip down in the forecastle. It was a fine gam we had, and they were all trumps, every soul on board. A short life to them, and a jolly death. And that fine gam I had, long, very long, after old Ahab touched her planks with his ivory heel, it minds me of the noble, solid, Saxon hospitality of that ship. And may my parson forget me, and the devil remember me, if I ever lose sight of it. Flip? Did I say we had flip? Yes, and we flipped it at a rate of ten gallons the hour, and when the squall came, for it's squally off there by Patagonia, and all hands, visitors and all, were called to reef topsails, we were so top-heavy that we had to swing each other aloft in bow lines, and we ignorantly furled the skirts of our jackets into the sails so we were hung there, reefed fast in the howling gale, a warning example to all drunken tars. However, the mast did not go overboard, and by and by we scrambled down, so sober that we had to pass the flip again, through the savage salt spray bursting down the forecastle scuttle, rather too much diluted, and pickled it to my taste. The beef was fine, tough, but with body to it. They said that it was bull beef, others that it was dromedary beef, but I do not know for certain how that was. They had dumplings, too, small but substantial, symmetrically globular and indestructible dumplings. I fancied that you could feel them and roll them about in you after they were swallowed. If you stooped over too far forward, you risked their pitching out of you like billiard balls. The bread... Uh, but that couldn't be helped. Besides, it was an antiscorbutic. In short, the bread contained the only fresh fare they had, but the forecastle was not very light, and it was very easy to step over into a dark corner when you ate it. But all in all, taking her from truck to helm, considering the dimensions of the cook's boilers, including his own live parchment boilers, fore and aft, I say the Samuel Enderby was a jolly ship of good fare and plenty, Fine flip and strong, crack fellows all, and capital from boot heels to hat band. But why was it, think ye, that the Samuel Enderby and some other English whalers I know of, not all though, were such famous hospitable ships that passed round the beef and the bread and the can and the joke, and were not soon weary of eating and drinking and laughing? I will tell you. The abounding good cheer of these English whalers is matter for historical research, nor have I been all sparing of historical whale research when it has seemed needed. 
The English were preceded in the whale fishery by the Hollanders, Zealanders, and Danes, from whom they derived many terms still extant in the fishery, and what is yet more, their fat old fashions touching plenty to eat and drink. For as a general thing, the English merchant ship scrimps her crew, but not so the English whaler. Hence, in the English, this thing of whaling good cheer is not normal and natural, but incidental and particular, and therefore must have some special origin, which is here pointed out and will be still further elucidated. During my researches in the Leviathanic histories, I stumbled upon an ancient Dutch volume, which by the musty whaling smell of it I knew must be about whalers. The title was Dan Koopman, wherefore I concluded that this must be the invaluable memoirs of some Amsterdam cooper in the fishery, as every whale ship must carry its cooper. I was reinforced in this opinion by seeing that it was the production of one Fitz Swackhamer, by my friend Dr. Snodhead, a very learned man, professor of Low Dutch and High German in the College of Santa Claus at Sapotz, to whom I handed the work for translation, giving him a box of sperm candies for his trouble. This same Dr. Snodhead, so soon as he spied the book, assured me that Dan Koopman did not mean the Cooper, but the Merchant. In short, this ancient and learned low Dutch book treated of the commerce of Holland and, among other subjects, contained a very interesting account of the whale fishery. And in this chapter it was, headed smir, or fat, that I found a long detailed list of the outfits for the larders and cellars of 180 sail of Dutch whalemen, from which list, as translated by Dr. Snodhead, I transcribed the following. 400,000 pounds of beef, 60,000 pounds Friesland pork, 150,000 pounds of stock fish, 550,000 pounds of biscuit, 72,000 pounds of soft bread, 2,800 firkins of butter, 20,000 pounds Texel and Leiden cheese, 144,000 pounds cheese, probably an inferior article, 550 ankers of Genever, 10,800 barrels of beer. Most statistical tables are parchingly dry in the reading, not so in the present case, however, where the reader is flooded with whole pipes, barrels, quarts, and gills of good gin and good cheer. At the time, I devoted three days to the studious digesting of all this beer, beef, and bread, during which many profound thoughts were incidentally suggested to me, capable of a transcendental and platonic application, and furthermore, I compiled supplementary tables of my own touching the probable quantity of stockfish, etc., consumed by every low Dutch harpooner in that ancient Greenland and Spitsbergen whale fishery. In the first place, the amount of butter and texel and laden cheese consumed seems amazing. I impute it, though, to their naturally unctuous natures, being rendered still more unctuous by the nature of their vocation and especially by their pursuing their game in those frigid polar seas on the very coasts of that Eskimo country where the convivial natives pledge each other in bumpers of train oil. The quantity of beer, too, is very large. 10,800 barrels. 
Now, as those polar fisheries could only be prosecuted in the short summer of that climate so that the whole cruise of one of these Dutch whalemen, including the short voyage to and from the Spitsbergen Sea, did not much exceed three months, say, and reckoning 30 men to each of their fleet of 180 sail, we have 5,400 low Dutch seamen in all. Therefore, I say we have precisely two barrels of beer per man for a 12 weeks allowance. Exclusive of this fair proportion of that 550 anchors of gin. Now, whether these gin and beer harpooners, so fuddled as one might fancy them to have been, were the right sort of men to stand in a boat's head and take good aim at flying whales, this would seem somewhat improbable. Yet they did aim at them and hit them too. But this was very far north, be it remembered, where beer agrees well with the constitution. Upon the equator in our southern fishery, beer would have been apt to make the harpooner sleepy at the masthead and boozy in his boat. And and grievous loss might ensue to Nantucket and New Bedford. But no more. Enough has been said to show that the old Dutch whalers of two or three centuries ago were high livers, and that the English whalers have not neglected so excellent an example. For, say they when cruising in an empty ship, if you can get nothing better out of the world, get a good dinner out of it at least. And this empties the decanter. Chapter 102. A Bower in the Arsicides. Hitherto, in descriptively treating of the sperm whale, I have chiefly dwelt upon the marvels of his outer aspect, or separately and in detail upon some few interior structural features. But to a large and thorough sweeping comprehension of him, it behooves me now to unbutton him still further, and untagging the points of his hose, unbuckling his garters, and casting loose the hooks and eyes of the joints of his innermost bones, set him before you in his ultimatum, that is to say, in his unconditional skeleton. But how now, Ishmael? How is it that you, a mere oarsman in the fishery, pretend to know aught about the subterranean parts of the whale? Did erudite stub, mounted upon your capstan, deliver lectures on the anatomy of the cetacea, and by help of the windlass hold up a specimen rib for examination? Explain thyself, Ishmael. Can you land a full-grown whale on your deck for examination as a cook dishes a roast pig? Surely not. A veritable witness have you hitherto been, Ishmael, but have a care how you seize the privilege of Jonah alone, the privilege of discoursing upon the joists and beams, the rafters, ridgepole, sleepers, and underpinnings making up the framework of Leviathan, and belike of the tallow pits, dairy rooms, butteries, and cheeseries in his bowels. I confess that since Jonah few whalemen have penetrated very far beneath the skin of the adult whale. Nevertheless, I have been blessed with an opportunity to dissect him in miniature. In a ship I belong to, a small cub sperm whale was once bodily hoisted to the deck for his poke, or bag, to make sheaths for the barbs of the harpoons and the heads of the lances. Think you I let that chance go, without using my boat hatchet and jackknife and breaking the seal and reading all the contents of that young cub? As for my exact knowledge of the bones of the Leviathan in their gigantic, full-grown development, for that rare knowledge I am indebted to my late royal friend Tranquo, king of Tranq, one of the Arsacides. 
For being at Trank years ago, when attached to the trading ship Day of Algiers, I was invited to spend part of the Arsacidian holidays with the Lord of Trank, at his retired palm villa at Pupia, a seaside glen not very far distant from what our sailors call Bamboo Town, his capital. Among many other fine qualities, my royal friend Tranco, being gifted with a devout love for all matters of barbaric virtue, had brought together in Pupella whatever rare things the most ingenious of his people could invent, chiefly carved woods of wonderful devices, chiseled shells, inlaid spears, costly paddles, aromatic canoes, and all these distributed among whatever natural wonders the wonder-freighted tribute-rendering waves had cast up upon his shores. Chief among these latter was a great sperm whale, which, after an unusually long raging gale, had been found dead and stranded with his head against a coconut tree, whose plumage-like tufted droopings seemed his verdant jet. When, after the vast body had been stripped of its fathom-deep enfoldings and the bones become dust-dry in the sun, then the skeleton was carefully transported up the Pupea Green, where a grand temple of lordly palms now sheltered it. The ribs were hung with trophies, the vertebrae were carved with Arescatidian annals in strange hieroglyphics, in the skull the priests kept up an unextinguished aromatic flame so that the mystic head again sent forth its vapory spout, while suspended from a bow the terrific lower jaw vibrated all over the devotees like the hair-hung sword that so affrighted Damocles. It was a wondrous sight. The wood was green as mosses of the icy glen. The trees stood high and haughty, feeling their living sap. The industrious earth beneath was as a weaver's loom, with a gorgeous carpet on it, whereof the ground vine tendrils formed the warp and woof, and the living flowers the figures. All the trees with their laden branches, all the shrubs and ferns and grasses, the message-carrying air, all these unceasingly were active. Through the lacings of the leaves the great sun seemed a flying shuttle weaving the unwearied verdure. Oh, busy weaver, unseen weaver, pause, one word, whither flows the fabric? What palace may it deck? Wherefore all these ceaseless toilings? Speak, weaver, stay thy hand, but one single word with thee. Nay, the shuttle flies, the figures float, from forth the loom, the freshet rushing carpet forever slides away. The weaver god he weaves, and by that weaving he is deafened that he hears no mortal voice, and by that humming we too who look upon the loom are deafened, and only when we escape it shall we hear the thousand voices that speak through it. For even so it is in all material factories. The spoken words are inaudible among the flying spindles. Those same words are plainly heard without the walls, bursting from the opened casements. Thereby have villainies been detected. Ah, mortal! Then be heedful, for so in all this din of the great world's loom thy subtlest thinkings may be overheard afar. Now, amid the green, life-restless loom of that Arsacidian wood, the great, white, worshipped skeleton lay lounging, a gigantic idler. Yet, as the ever-woven verdant warp and woof intermixed and hummed around him, the mighty idler seemed the cunning weaver, himself all woven over with the vines, every month assuming greener, 
fresher verdure, but himself a skeleton. Life folded death, death trellised life, the grim god wived with youthful life, and begat him curly-headed glories. Now, when the royal Tranquo and I visited this wondrous whale, and saw the skull and altar, and the artificial smoke ascending from it where the real jet had issued, I marveled that the king should regard a chapel as an object of virtue. He laughed. But more, I marveled that the priest should swear that smoky jet of his was genuine. To and fro I paced before this skeleton, brushing the vines aside, broke through the ribs, and with a ball of Arsacidian twine, wandered, eddied along amid its many winding shaded colonnades and arbors. But soon my line was out, and following it back, I emerged from the opening where I entered. I saw no living thing within. Naught was there but bones. Cutting me a green measuring rod, I once more dived within the skeleton. From their arrow slit in the skull, the priests perceived me taking the attitude of the final rib. How now, they shouted, darest thou measure this our god? That's for us. Eh, priests? Well, how long do you make him then? But hereupon a fierce contest rose among them concerning feet and inches. They cracked each other's sconces with their yardsticks, the great skull echoed, and seizing that lucky chance, I quickly concluded my own admeasurements. These admeasurements I now propose to set before you, but first be it recorded that in this matter I am not free to utter any fancied measurements I please, because there are skeleton authorities you can refer to to test my accuracy. There is a Leviathanic Museum, they tell me, in Hull, England, one of the whaling ports of that country, where they have some fine specimens of finbacks and other whales. Likewise, I have heard that in the Museum of Manchester in New Hampshire, they have what the proprietors call the only perfect specimen of a Greenland or river whale in the United States. Moreover, at a place in Yorkshire, England, Burton Constable, by name, a certain Sir Clifford Constable, has in his procession the skeleton of a sperm whale, but of moderate size, by no means of the full-grown magnitude of my King Tranquos. In both cases, the two stranded whales to which these skeletons belonged were originally claimed by their proprietors upon similar grounds, King Tranquo seizing his because he wanted it, and Sir Clifford because he was lord of the seigneurs of those parts. Sir Clifford's whale has been articulated throughout, so that like a great chest of drawers you can open and shut him in all his bony cavities, spread out his ribs like a gigantic fan, and swing all day upon his lower jaw. Locks are to be put upon some of his trapdoors and shutters, and a footman will show round visitors with a bunch of keys at his side. Sir Clifford thinks of charging tuppence for a peep at the whispering gallery in the spinal column, threepence to hear an echo in the hollow of his cerebellum, and sixpence for the unrivaled view from his forehead. The skeleton dimensions I shall now proceed to set down are copied verbatim from my right arm, where I had them tattooed, as in my wild wanderings at that period there was no other secure way of preserving such valuable statistics. But as I was crowded for space, and wished the other parts of my body to remain a blank page for a poem I was then composing, at least what untattooed parts might remain, I did not trouble myself with the odd inches, nor indeed should inches at all enter into a congenial admeasurement of the whale. Chapter 103. Measurement of the Whale's Skeleton. 
In the first place, I wish to lay before you a particular, plain statement, touching the living bulk of this leviathan, whose skeleton we are briefly to exhibit. Such a statement may prove useful here. According to a careful calculation I have made, and which I partly base upon Captain Scoresby's estimate of 70 tons for the largest size Greenland whale of 60 feet in length, according to my careful calculation, I say a sperm whale of the largest magnitude, between 85 and 90 feet in length, and something less than 40 feet in its fullest circumference, such a whale will weigh at least 90 tons, so that, reckoning thirteen men to a ton, he would considerably outweigh the combined population of a whole village of one thousand one hundred inhabitants. Think you not, then, that brains, like yoked cattle, should be put in this leviathan to make him at all budge to any landsman's imagination? Having already in various ways put before you his skull, spout hole, jaw, teeth, tail, forehead, fins, and diverse other parts, I shall now simply point out with what is in most interesting in the general bulk of his unobstructed bones. But as this colossal skull embraces so very large a proportion of the entire extent of the skeleton, as it is by far the most complicated part, and as nothing is to be repeated concerning it in this chapter, you will must not fail to carry it in your mind or under your arm as we proceed, otherwise you will not gain a complete notion of the general structure we are about to view. In length, the sperm whale skeleton at Trank measured 72 feet, so that when fully invested and extended in life, he must have been 90 feet long, for in the whale the skeleton loses about one-fifth in length compared with the living body. Of this 72 feet, his skull and jaw comprised some 20 feet, leaving some 50 feet of plain backbone. Attached to his backbone for something less than a third of its length was the mighty circular basket of ribs which once enclosed his vitals. To me, this vast ivory-ribbed chest with the long, unrelieved spine extending far away from it in a straight line not a little resembled the hull of a great ship new laid upon the stocks, when only some twenty of her naked bow ribs are inserted. The keel is otherwise, for the time, but a long, disconnected timber. The ribs were ten to a side. The first to begin from the neck was nearly six feet long. The second, third, and fourth were each successively longer, till you came to the climax of the fifth, or one of the middle ribs, which measured eight feet and some inches. From that part the remaining ribs diminished, till the tenth and last only spanned five feet and some inches. In general thickness they all bore a seemly correspondence to their length, the middle ribs were the most arched. In some of the Arsacides they used them for beams whereon to lay footpath bridges over small streams. In considering these ribs, I could not but be struck anew with the circumstance, so variously repeated in this book, that the skeleton of the whale is by no means the mold of his invested form. The largest of the trank ribs, one of the middle ones, occupied that part of the fish which in life is greatest in depth. Now the greatest depth of the invested body of this particular whale must have been at least sixteen feet, whereas the corresponding rib measured but little more than eight feet so that this rib only conveyed half the true notion of the living magnitude of that part. Besides, for some way where I now saw but a naked spine, all that had once been wrapped round with tons of added bulk in flesh, 
muscle, blood, and bowels. Still more for the ample fins, I here saw but few disordered joints, and in place of the weighty and majestic but boneless flukes, an utter blank. How vain and foolish, then, thought I, for timid, untraveled man to try to comprehend aright this wondrous whale by merely poring over his dead, attenuated skeleton, stretched in this peaceful wood. No, only in the heart of quickest perils, only when within the eddyings of his angry flukes, only on the profound, unbounded sea can the fully invested whale be truly and livingly found out. But the spine... For that, the best way we can consider it is, with a crane, to pile its bones high up on end. No speedy enterprise, but now it's done, it looks like Pompey's pillar. There are forty-odd vertebrae in all, which in the skeleton are not locked together. They mostly lie like the great knobbed blocks on a gothic spire, forming solid courses of heavy masonry. The largest, a middle one, is in width something less than three feet and in depth more than four. The smallest, where the spine tapers away into the tail, is only two inches in width and looks something like a white billiard ball. I was told that there were still smaller ones, but they had been lost by some little cannibal urchins, the priest's children, who had stolen them to play marbles with. Thus we see how that the spine of even the hugest of living things tapers off at last into simple child's play. Chapter 104. The Fossil Whale. From his mighty bulk, the whale affords a most congenial theme whereon to enlarge, amplify, and generally expatiate. Would you, you could not compress him. By good rights he should only be treated of in imperial folio. Not to tell over again his furlongs from spiracle to tail and the yards he measures about the waist, only think of the gigantic involutions of his intestines, where they lie in him like great cables and hosiers coiled away in the subterranean orlop deck of a line of battleship. Since I have undertaken to manhandle this leviathan, it behooves me to approve myself omnisciently exhaustive in the enterprise, not overlooking the minutest seminal germs of his blood and spinning him out to the uttermost coil of his bowels. Having already described him in most of his present habitatory and anatomical peculiarities, it now remains to magnify him in an archaeological, fossiliferous, and antediluvian point of view. Applied to any other creature than the leviathan, to an ant, or a flea, such portly terms might justly be deemed unwarrantably grandiloquent. But when leviathan is the text, the case is altered. Fain am I to stagger to this emprise under the weightiest words of the dictionary. And here be it said that whenever it has been convenient to consult one in the course of these dissertations, I have invariably used a huge quarto edition of Johnson, expressly purchased for that purpose. Because that famous lexicographer's uncommon personal bulk more fitted him to compile a lexicon to be used by a whale author like me. One often hears of writers that rise and swell with their subject, though it may seem but an ordinary one. How then with me, writing of this leviathan, unconsciously my chirography expands into placard capitals. Give me a condor's quill, give me Vesuvius's crater for an inkstand. Friends, hold my arms, for in the mere act of penning my thoughts of this leviathan, they weary me and make me faint with their outreaching comprehensiveness of sweep. 
as if to include the whole circle of the sciences, and all the generations of whales, and men, and mastodons past, present, and to come, with all the revolving panoramas of empire on earth, and throughout the whole universe, not excluding its suburbs. Such and so magnifying is the virtue of a large and liberal theme, we expand to its bulk. To produce a mighty book, you must choose a mighty theme. No great and enduring volume can ever be written on the flea, though many there be who have tried it. Ere entering upon the subject of fossil whales, I present my credentials as a geologist by stating that in my miscellaneous time I have been a stonemason and also a great digger of ditches, canals, and wells, wine vaults, cellars, and cisterns of all sorts. Likewise, by way of preliminary, I desire to remind the reader that while in the earlier geological strata there are found the fossils of monsters now almost completely extinct, the subsequent relics discovered in what are called the tertiary formations seem the connecting or at any rate intercepted links between the antichronical creatures and those whose remote posterity are said to have entered the ark. All the fossil whales hitherto discovered belong to the tertiary period, which is the last preceding the superficial formations. And though none of them precisely answer to any known species of the present time, they are yet sufficiently akin to them in general respects to justify their taking rank as cetacean fossils. Detached broken fossils of pre-Adamite whales, fragments of their bones and skeletons have, within thirty years past, at various intervals, been found at the base of the Alps, in Lombardy, in France, in England, in Scotland, and in the states of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Among the more curious of such remains is part of a skull which in the year 1779 was disinterred in the Rue Dauphine in Paris, a short street opening almost directly upon the Palace of the Tuileries, and bones disinterred in excavating the great docks of Antwerp in Napoleon's time. Cuvier pronounced these fragments to have belonged to some utterly unknown leviathanic species. But by far the most wonderful of all cetacean relics was the almost complete, vast skeleton of an extinct monster, found in the year 1842 on the plantation of Judge Krieg in Alabama. The awe-stricken, credulous slaves in the vicinity took it for the bones of one of the fallen angels. The Alabama doctors declared it a huge reptile and bestowed upon it the name of Basilosaurus. But some specimen bones of it being taken across the sea to Owen, the English anatomist, it turned out that this alleged reptile was a whale, though of a departed species. A significant illustration of the fact, again and again repeated in this book, that the skeleton of the whale furnishes but little clue to the shape of his fully invested body. So Owen rechristened the monster Zegulodon, and in his paper read before the London Geological Society pronounced it, in substance, one of the most extraordinary creatures which the mutations of the globe have blotted out of existence. When I stand among these mighty leviathan skeletons, skulls, tusks, jaws, ribs, and vertebrae, all characterized by partial resemblances to existing breeds of sea monsters, but at the same time bearing, on the other hand, similar affinities to the annihilated antichronical leviathans, their incalculable seniors, 
I am, by a flood, born back to that wondrous period ere time itself can be said to have begun, for time began with man. Here Saturn's gray chaos rolls over me, and I obtain dim, shuddering glimpses into those polar eternities, when wedged bastions of ice pressed hard upon what are now the tropics, and in all the 25,000 miles of this world's circumference not an inhabitable hand's breadth of land was visible. Then the whole world was the whales and king of creation, he left his wake along the present lines of the Andes and the Himalayas. Who can show a pedigree like Leviathan? Ahab's harpoon had shed older blood than the pharaohs. Methuselah seems a schoolboy. I look round and shake hands with Shem. I am horror-struck at this anti-mosaic, unsourced existence of the unspeakable terrors of the whale, which, having been before all time, must needs exist after all humane ages are over. But not alone has this leviathan left his pre-adamant traces in the stereotype plates of nature, and in limestone and marl bequeathed his ancient bust. But upon Egyptian tablets, whose antiquity seems to claim for them an almost fossiliferous character, we find the unmistakable print of his fin. In an apartment of the great temple of Dendera some fifty years ago, there was discovered upon the granite ceiling a sculptured and painted planisphere, abounding in centaurs, griffins, and dolphins, similar to the grotesque figures on the celestial globe of the moderns. Gliding among them, old Leviathan swam as of yore, was there swimming in that planisphere centuries before Solomon was cradled. Nor must there be omitted another strange attestation to the antiquity of the whale. In his own osseous post-diluvian reality, as set down by the venerable John Leo, the old Barbary traveler. Not far from the seaside, they have a temple the rafters and beams of which are made of whale bones, for whales of a monstrous size are oftentimes cast up dead upon that shore. The common people imagine that by a secret power bestowed by God upon the temple, no whale can pass it without immediate death. But the truth of the matter is that on either side of the temple there are rocks that shoot two miles into the sea and wound the whales when they light upon them. They keep a whale's rib of incredible length for a miracle, which lying upon the ground had its convex part uppermost makes an arch, the head of which cannot be reached by a man upon a camel's back. This rib, says John Leo, is said to have lain there a hundred years before I saw it. Their historians affirm that a prophet who prophesied of Mohammed came from this temple, and some do not stand to assert that the prophet Jonas was cast forth by a whale at the base of this temple. In this Afric temple of the whale I leave you, reader, and if you be a Nantucketer and a whaleman, you will silently worship there. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project straight away, please send an email to saftp at tuta.io. That's S-A-F-T-P at tuta.io. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. Visit patreon.com strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and occasionally mystify. I'll see you all in two weeks.